<coughs> Last week I posed a question to you, what will happen to our nation, and then went on to explain that this country is very much at the forefront of prophecy, and that we are going to go through revolution and civil war, probably martial law, and then we are going to be in a disastrous financial and economic uh, collapse and be taken over by the king of the north or the Assyrian or a consortium of, of nations that have gathered together to destroy America. So that in a nutshell is the, nation, the uh, message for our nation that only Christ can save it, Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton or Joe Jones can't. Nobody can save this nation but Christ himself, and he is going to punish it thoroughly before he begins to save it and make it great again during the millennium when he and his father will be here to rule on this earth. And it is not going to become great. It is not going to be blessed again until that time. So there's you a brief review of last week's sermon. I'll pose another question today, which is similar. This one is, what will happen to our church? Now, I understand this is God's church. Uh, it's not our church in that sense. People make their own churches. I use it only in this, from the standpoint that out of all the breakdowns and splinters of Worldwide Church of God, this is the one that we are a part of, and we are certainly called out members of God's overall church. <clears throat> and he built his church. He also said he would scatter his church, uh, that he would spew it out of his mouth. And we've seen many scriptures uh, to show that. So when I say our church, I mean this tiny little congregation. What's going to happen to it? That is a question that needs to be understood and resolved because always with us there can be a certain amount of fear, of discomfort, of insecurity, of wondering, of worry, of not being able to sort out just where we're headed at this point and what will happen to us. So today, let's address that from a standpoint of not the church overall, we know the church overall was going to be decimated, that is 90% uh, scattered, and actually 100% scattered, but 10%, 18% remnant would be regathered uh, prior to Christ's return in order to build the temple, to build uh, Jerusalem, and then to set an example for the rest of the world of how people ought to live during the Great Tribulation. So we understand that from the Minor Prophets series and the scriptures that we have examined. But now, let's bring it down to ourselves here. John Reitenbaugh started Church of the Great God with his first sermon entitled, Do You See God in Your Life? I thought it was a very, very good beginning for Church of the Great God. And I think it's a question that I have brought this up before, but I think it's something we need to reiterate, and that is that we need to see God in our lives, you and me, those of us here, those of us on the phone line who are hearing the messages uh, that have been given and the understanding that has been given to us of the scriptures that 
by and large, most of the church does not understand. So, what about us? What will happen to us? Let's go to Rev, uh, Matthew 24 to begin with. Uh, and again, a little bit of an overview, but we are certainly a part of this. In chapter 23, Christ had upbraided the Pharisees quite strongly and called them whited sepulchers and, and laid uh, quite a, uh, a diatribe on them, called them serpents, and so on. And then in 37, he said, You've killed the prophets and stoned them which are sent to you, and how often would I have gathered you, you're part of Israel, under my wings, but you would not. You wouldn't come when I clucked. Uh, then he says, Behold, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, You shall not see me henceforth till you shall say, Blessed is he that comes in the name or under the authority of the Lord. So he was essentially divorcing the Jews at that point. He was disfellowshipping them, if you will. He was saying, You leaders of the Jews have not followed me, you have not accepted me, and I'll have nothing more to do with you until you accept those whom I send. Well, who did he send? He addresses them in chapter 24, his disciples who became apostles. And he says that the Jews have to accept the New Testament ministry in the New Testament church of God before he will ever have anything to do with them again. That's pretty clear, isn't it, there at the end of 23? So, in that setting, he begins to teach these disciples specifically about the end times. Now, he had addressed them in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 in the Sermon on the Mount about uh, our conduct and the way we should live. Here he's telling us about the end of the age, time of the end, uh, and what will happen. So they asked him about the temple, and he said there's not going to be one stone left on another in the temple. Now, that temple that was there, the physical temple, was destroyed uh, in about 70 A.D., 69-70, and you can't find a stone on it today. Now, they say, the Jews do, that the what they call the Wailing Wall over there is the west wall of the temple, but it's not. They don't even know where the original Jerusalem was, and they don't know where the original temple was by any means, and therefore that wailing wall is not part of the temple of God. That's another story. Anyway, if we uh, put this in the light of the church, the spiritual temple, uh, he said he would spew it and scatter it, and it too will not have one stone left upon another. And this is an end-time prophecy. So we are still in the throes of the church being destroyed and not one stone left upon another. It isn't finished yet. It has been progressing, even as I said it would continue to back in 1996 when this message became clear. And it will continue to do so until uh, there's really nothing left and God is going to draw individuals to come and build his temple. Anyway, he sat on the Mount of Olives. And his disciples came without the multitude and says, What shall be the sign of your coming and the end of the world? And he said, Take heed that no man deceive you, for many will come saying, I am Christ, and deceive many. Now whether they're saying he is the Christ and using his name but not following him, or whether they're saying they're the Christ, the Antichrist, uh, 
could be either way, and it's probably actually both. There were people coming claiming to be following his name and by his authority, and there will be some coming saying that they are God, uh, the Antichrist, against Christ, but saying he is Christ. So that could be taken either way and probably as both. Then he goes on to say what the conditions would be at the end of the age. Wars and rumors of wars, and tells us not to be troubled. These things have to come to pass, but the end isn't yet. We've had lots of wars and rumors of wars, and still are having them, but the end is not here. And then he says, nation would rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilence and earthquakes in different places. These are the beginning of sorrows. And we see volcanoes and uh, earthquakes and pestilences and famines and droughts and so on around the world uh, and in our own country increasingly uh, as we get nearer. But it'll get worse. They'll deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you, and you shall be hated of all nations and peoples for my name's sake. There is a great persecution going on of anyone who is Christian today by our own government and by other governments around the world uh, and by the whole Muslim world. Uh, and our own government it is importing Muslims as fast as they possibly can to help kill out Christianity. So that's what's going on in the country. They have already started turning on so-called Christians, and there will come a time when a true Christian will also be sought out to be killed, as we'll probably see in Daniel a little later on. Verse 10, And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. Now here he's talking about people within the church. He's talking about Christians here and saying that church members will be offended and betray one another. Many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many, and this will be within the church as well. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. There's been a lot of sin, there's been a lot of Laodiceanism, and many have seen their love wax cold, and they've dropped out of God's church. Uh, they've quit following God. Some have dropped out of the church or parts of the church and are going it alone now uh, because of iniquity. And some of that we may examine right here among ourselves because iniquity has abounded and some have waxed cold from us and have departed from us. But he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. Now that tells you right there that this is speaking to truly called out sons of God, uh, because if they endure, if they stay with it, if they overcome and stay, then they will be saved when this is all done. So only those who have been called and set aside and sanctified can be saved, if you follow my line of thinking there. So therefore, it has to be talking about those in that category. So he's talking definitely to the church. And in verse 14, then, it says, The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached all the world for a witness to all nations, and then shall the end come. Now, Herbert Armstrong thought that he was going to preach the gospel to all the world as a witness, thought it was his commission, and he made an attempt to do that, but he didn't get it to all the world, and the end hasn't come, and he's been dead for 30 years now. So this obviously is something 
still yet to come, because the gospel is not being preached today to the whole world, and the end hasn't come. Then he says that this is in the context of the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, and that when that abomination is set up, it's not just a historical thing that occurred before with Antiochus Epiphanes, but there will be a man in the end who sets up an abomination again in the temple of God. So Daniel was a book that was written for the end, and in fact, God even said it was sealed up until the end. So when Daniel says that an abomination will be set up, he's speaking of the future, of the end, not of ancient history. And that is the time that those who are in Judah or Judea flee to the mountains, and then will be great tribulation. At the end of that tribulation, verse 29, uh, the sign of the Son of Man and the day of the Lord shows. So here we're talking about the very end time. Now, you and I all subscribed, or we would not be here today, that Herbert Armstrong was the man that God called out and revealed knowledge to to begin his end-time work. I'm, not, I'm speaking to the choir here. <laughs> we all agree on that uh, premise, or we wouldn't be here today, and we wouldn't have been in Worldwide Church of God. Now, the world would say this is crazy, as they thought of him. And that's okay, because he did come to do a job, and his job was to call many, and out of those, then, a few would be chosen to finish the work. In Matthew 28, the last couple of verses, 19 and 20, show what his job was, to call. And many were called under Herbert Armstrong. And now, after the spewing, God is seeing who will repent and whom he will choose to finish with the 10% who will be called together as a remnant to finish the work. Now, he mentions in Zechariah 1 that there's a 70-year period that we're dealing with here. Now, Zechariah is an end-time book as well. It talks about the two witnesses. It talks about things they will do and things that will happen in the interim until the return of Christ. And the book ends with Christ uh, coming to the Mount of Olives and then setting up his government on the earth. So Zechariah is very much an end-time book. And in chapter 4, compared with Revelation 11, it shows that the two mentioned here are the same two witnesses of Revelation 11. Uh, so Zechariah was written long before Christ came to this earth to live, and it is a prophecy for this very end time. Now, notice uh, that Zechariah begins time-wise, in the middle of the book of Haggai, which is a message to Zerubbabel and Joshua, the two witnesses, uh, that there will be a remnant of people called, 10%, to come and build the temple. And Zechariah starts in the middle of Zechariah, time, or in the middle of Haggai, time-wise, and the first part of his message is that whomsoever God sins here at the end time you are to listen to and not do to them as your fathers did to the prophets. 
It's a message to the end-time church that when those people and this remnant are about to show up, that we had better be very, very careful not to do as our forefathers did, who stoned and dissed and cut asunder and killed the prophets, put them in jail or whatever. So he says, don't be like that. Then he goes on to say, uh, Zechariah asked the question, uh, let's see, down here in verse 12. The angel of the eternal answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem, which we know is the church, Hebrews 12, 22 and 23, and on the cities of Judah, against which you have had indignation these three score and ten years? So, here is an indication that God has not been pleased with the church for 70 years. Now, let's understand that. If he called the church out... Uh, shouldn't he be pleased with his church? Well, that depends on the church. That depends on how we live and how we react and what we do. Let's go on to see what is commented on about these 70 years mentioned here. And this is an end-time prophecy, remember. This is talking about an end-time 70 years, not some other time. We'll see that in a little bit. The Eternal answered the angel to talk with me with good words and comfortable words. So he says, now, you've been angry with the church for 70 years. What's going on? And he gave me good and comfortable words. In other words, he's going to give me an answer that is going to be pleasing, ultimately. So the angel that communed with me said to me, Cry you, saying, Thus says the Eternal of hosts, I am jealous for my church and for Zion, the church, with a great jealousy. So God is very jealous of his people and of his church. Those are good and comfortable words. He cares about us, okay? And I am very sore displeased with the heathen that are at ease, for I was but a little displeased, and they helped forward the affliction. So God says, I'm jealous for my church, and he shows a little later on here, he's going to take care of it. But he says, I wasn't terribly displeased. I was a little displeased. And then the, the heathen came in and made me very displeased. Now, when the Tkachas began to take the church back into paganism and to evangelical uh, beliefs, God became very, very displeased. And he began to scatter the church, and spew it out of his mouth. So they were a representation of the heathens here. Now I think there is coming, and already is uh, actually born, another fulfillment of this, because this book, Haggai and Zechariah combined, are more about the latter temple, not the former. The former was under Herbert Armstrong, and there will be old men who live long enough to see the latter in its heyday or its glory. So, what we are reading about here is the final fulfillment. Herbert Armstrong told me personally one time in 1981 that he was the rubber bell of, of uh, Haggai and Zechariah. And I went home and made a deep study into those two books, and I still didn't really understand them. I said, well, he probably is. And today, I'll tell you, he was a minor fulfillment of Zerubbabel. 
he did build an end-time church. And his son was filthy and was kicked out and was brought back, and you know that whole story. So I think they, too, were a minor fulfillment of a work of God. But there is a greater work coming with a different Joshua and Zerubbabel and with a remnant of that which was spewed out and destroyed. So when it was taken the wrong direction, God began to tear it apart. That's the former, former church, the former temple under Herbert Armstrong. Speaking here of a spiritual temple. <clears throat> so he helped forward the affliction. He's, he's the one who blew it out and caused the affliction to come. He says that in Lamentations and Jeremiah and Revelation 3 and all through the Bible. Uh, but I am returned to Jerusalem with mercies. My house shall be built in it, says the Eternal of hosts, and a line shall be stretched forth upon Jerusalem. And he says he will yet comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem in verse 17. So what he's doing is looking forward here to something that is yet to occur with the final and greater fulfillment that will bring us to the end and to those who will preach the gospel to the world as a witness. And when they die, three days later and a half, the end will come. That's the way it is laid out. He goes on to say that there will come four leaders who will uh, scatter Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem uh, when he starts the gathering, starts bringing a few people, there will come some who will try to scatter it, and then four builders who will fray them and cast them out. That also is in the same context of the last and end-time fulfillment. We had leaders who came and uh, tried to scatter and destroy Worldwide Church of God, and they got the job done. And that has not been remedied. Uh, but Christ is going to send leaders now who will remedy it and will finish it. Now, I'm going to run some numbers at you, some years, and you can say that's coincidence if you wish, and that's okay, uh, and maybe it is. But there, it is very, very interesting, to me at least, to say the least, to address this 70 years because it is definitely mentioned here in Zechariah 1 in terms of the end-time church. Now, Jeremiah was a prophet who told Israel they would go into, into the captivity of Babylon for 70 years, and that they would then be released from Babylon and be able to go back and build the temple and Jerusalem. And indeed, in history, that is what occurred. Uh, Jeremiah was told to buy a field in Anatoth, and uh, that would become symbolic of what would happen in the end time. And in fact, I showed you there, and I think this is Jeremiah 35, is it, uh, indications that that was a prophecy for the end, not just in Jeremiah's day. So, then we have, in Zechariah 1, another mention of the 70 years and how at the end of that time God would again begin to show mercy on his people and prepare them to build a temple and to build Jerusalem uh, toward the abomination and the gospel being preached. 
which is slated to come. Now, let's back up just for a moment and take an overview. Uh, Christ began his ministry on the earth in, it appears, 27 A.D., and preached for three and a half years, dying in the spring of uh, 31 A.D. Now, if you fast forward, and he even declared, as we have seen, in, 19, in 27, as he stood in the temple, that he was declaring the acceptable year of the Lord, the Jubilee year, in 27 A.D., now, Herbert Armstrong always said that the gospel had not been preached on the earth for 1,900 years, or uh, that would be 38 Jubilee time cycles, all right? And that he was called to continue that after 1,900 years. All right, Christ began preaching in 27 A.D., it appears, uh, and the preparation for that ministry began before that. He was baptized of John the Baptist and so on. Well, if you fast forward 1900 years, Herbert Armstrong began to be called and began to understand truth so that he could preach it in 1926 and 1927. That was the time he examined the Sabbath and various other doctrines and God began to show him the truth, in other words, and the gospel or the message that he was to preach, began to come 1,900 years, precisely, after Christ began to prepare and then to preach. Now, that began to happen. And if you move forward then 100 years from 1926-27, you come to 20,026 and 27, which would be two more time cycles from the time that Herbert Armstrong began to be called and then to preach. That makes exactly 2,000 years. Now, we had 4,000 years of history prior to Christ's preaching. Then we will have 2,000 years until the preaching at this end of the age is done and complete. Probably in 20, 2026, the millennium beginning in 2027, after Christ takes his bride up for a year's honeymoon, probably cut short, but nevertheless. So that makes four days before, a day being as a 1,000 years, before Christ began preaching. And 2,000 years, when the gospel of the kingdom has been finished in 2026-27 A.D. Exactly 6,000 years. Man's number. Then begins the millennium with the announcement of such on the Day of Atonement 2027. So the numbers all fit, right? With what we've understood about the fe what the feasts explain. The plan of God the plan of salvation, over a 7,000-year period. Now, let's examine what happened from 20, 1926 and 27 when Herbert Armstrong began to be called and understand truths of God. From 1926 and 27 to 1996 and 97, you have a period of 70 years. 
Now, in that 70 years, Herbert Armstrong preached and taught. Uh, he died. The heathen took over. And in 1996, God began to reveal information about the church that we in our simplistic, and Herbert Armstrong in his simplistic understanding, simply did not grasp. We understood that this is the end-time church. He believed that he would preach the gospel around the world as a witness and that the end would come. Well, instead, he died short of that, and the end hasn't come three decades later, and he never did get the gospel preached around the world as a witness to everyone. It never happened. But he was used to call. Now, 70 years later, God began to give us some answers as to the true meaning of Haggai and Zechariah, and that there was yet another spiritual temple to be built that would be overseen by the two final two end-time leaders who would have a 10% remnant of the church come to them to help build the temple. That's the message of Haggai and Zechariah. Well, that knowledge began to come in 1996 and 97. That was a time of revelation of truth, of much deeper and better understanding of what the future is to hold, and exactly how it would come about, which is laid out in the Minor Prophet series beginning in, I think, 1997 or 98, whenever I began that. So God began to pour forth an answer after 70 years. Isn't that what Zechariah says? Isn't that what the question was? What's going to happen after these 70 years? And he says, I was a little displeased. The heathen came in. I got real displeased. But I am also going to return with mercy, and my house will yet be built in it. God began to reveal that the church had to be rebuilt, and at that time, in 1996 and 7, began to show that it also had to be a physical temple that would be built, not just spiritual. Herbert Armstrong never understood a physical temple needed to be built. He thought the Jews would do it. He didn't think the church would. But God addresses his people, his leaders, his church, and tells them to build a temple. And they'll say, it isn't time to do that. I don't know of any church member ever who has said it's not time to build a spiritual temple. We all agree on that. But if I say we've got to build a spirit, physical temple, they'll say, oh, no, it isn't time to do that, or the Jews are going to do that, or that isn't, that isn't planned. Okay? That shows that the physical temple is the one that Haggai is talking about there. The people will say, don't build it. It isn't time to do that. So God revealed to Herbert Armstrong in 26 and 27 some truths that would lead to him building a spiritual temple. And God began to reveal things having to do with the spiritual temple and the understanding of, it, of uh, Hebrews 12, 22 and 23 began to come clear that the prophecies about Jerusalem and Zion and Judah and Israel are prophecies first and foremost about the church, the spiritual. And then Haggai and Zechariah deal not only with the spiritual church, but with also a physical temple that must be built. So God began to reveal it 
to Herbert Armstrong 1,900 years after Christ proclaimed his gospel. Then he began to reveal it to us exactly 70 years later in January of 1996. 70 years. After the 70 years, God returned with mercies and began to show us why the church came apart. And that's what interested you. Because you began to see answers to what was happening to us. Okay? Now let's move on. In... uh, 1931, uh, The Plain Truth began, I think the broadcast also, uh, if I recall properly, or about that time, in 1931. That was a vast move forward from one man talking to a few people in a little school somewhere in Oregon to where he began to have a broader audience and began to move forward with the revelation of truth and move forward with the work, the church, that God had begun to build build through Herbert Armstrong. Uh, Okay, 70 years after that is 2001. Now, most of you had begun to understand and had heard the Minor Prophets series in the summer of 2000 prior to Feast of Trumpets uh, 2000 and then showed up at the Feast of Tabernacles in 2000. But when did we begin to move to northern Arizona and southern Utah, 2001. Herbert Armstrong began to move forward with a a bigger and increasing work in 1931. Exactly 70 years later, we moved. We began actually to put into practice the things that God had revealed to us needed to be done. 70 years later. Does that mean anything? All right, let's move on to 1933. That was the time when the uh, church under Herbert Armstrong was actually organized as a church. He incorporated, which the church should not be incorporated, but he did. And uh, he came to, I think, regret that in the 70s, 79, when the state of California took over the church because they could, since it was legal, and legal because they were a corporation. A free church, by the Constitution and by law, cannot be taken over by the state. But if an incorporated church can, because it has surrendered its uh, autonomy to the government. So he shouldn't have done it, but nevertheless, the church was organized. Whether it was put in a corporation form or not is another point. Well, 2003 in January... We had moved out, we had moved forward, we would said we go seeking a place, we don't know exactly where we're going, but we're going to southern Utah. And we moved, we did it. Just like he began moving forward on faith, not knowing what the broadcast would do, what the plain truth would do, but moving forward in faith that God would bless it. So we moved in 2001, 70 years later, with the faith and belief that God would bless it. In 1933, he had an organized beginning of the church. In January of 2003, we had bought at the end of 2002, uh, I had put the money down and purchased this land that we're sitting on today. And we began to fence it, we began to divide it up into spaces of an acre each, 
And in January of 2003, we organized the land. That is, we uh, assigned lots or spaces to the people, and they began to move on to the, their own lots in January of 2003. So that was the organization, or the organized beginning of what we were doing. We'd been somewhat disorganized up to that point, just moving and renting houses and whatever in 2001. And in 2003, we had an organized beginning. Now, uh, in 1947, Herbert Armstrong began Ambassador College. What was that, in essence? It was an expansion. It was a recognition that if the church was going to grow into a worldwide organization, it had to have a ministry. It had to have people trained to help because he could not do a worldwide work by himself. Impossible. So, he says, I've got to have a college to train ministers. He called it a liberal arts, and indeed it was, but the purpose was to train people to help with the church. That was the purpose. And that's very well understood, I think, by all of us. Now, fast forward to 2017. That's in our front view mirror less than a month away. 2017 is coming upon us. Now, we've established here a relationship between Christ, Christ and Herbert Armstrong, and then between the years that the work moved forward under Herbert Armstrong until its end, and then a period of confusion and a new beginning after 70 years of truth being revealed once again, and the dates, 70 years later, correspond between Herbert Armstrong's history and our history. Do we see God in our lives? Does this make any sense? Now, let's extrapolate from that, that if these indeed have a meaning, these dates we've discussed up to this point, will future dates also correspond? Good question, right? If you see a pattern so far, will the pattern continue, or will it be disrupted? From 1947, in the beginning of the expansion of the college, or the church, we should then expect another expansion in 2017, right? 70 years later. That's the pattern. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but that's the pattern. Now, what do the prophecies tell us? They tell us that God is going to begin to call a remnant together, he will see, have his leaders see eye to eye when he begins to do signs and wonders and miracles to catch the eye of one who is blind and deaf. And then he will see and come to help build the temple since he actually founded it or laid the foundation, but he didn't do any more than that. Then he went into arrest, if you will, or a time of not doing much, but as he expressed it to me, uh, marking time. We have not been marking time. We went ahead and did the things that we began to understand needed to be done. But he says he will bring the leadership together, and it apparently is around Passover time, if you read Isaiah 52, 53, and 54, because the leaders see eye to eye prior to Passover in the context, 
Then we have the Passover, describing all Christ did for us in chapter 53. And then in 54, we see an expansion of people beginning to gather and to prepare to build the temple. They come to the leadership that God has established. That begins the story then of Haggai and Zechariah in actual fulfillment. That should happen spring of 2017 based on the pattern we've seen so far. I'm not saying it will happen then. I'm not going to go out on that limb. I'm just showing you a pattern. And then we'll see what happens. Is this true or not? Now, in 1953, uh, the gospel began to go to Britain, to Europe, and ultimately to, to the rest of the world. 1953 was a major expansion. Up to that point, it had gone only to the United States and Canada, in part, and to Mexico a little, if they wanted to listen over XELO and XEG. In 1953, it began to go to Europe. All right, let's go tack 70 years onto that, and we come to 2023. 70 years later, will it expand to the whole world? Now, God told the two witnesses in Revelation 11 to examine the church and the altar and then the worship therein, but to leave the court of the Gentiles out. They were to deal with the church and the church only at that time as they began to do what they have to do. Then a little later in the chapter, it shows them beginning to go to the whole world. Now, Herbert Armstrong started out dealing with just the church. Then he began to go to the nation of Ephraim, the United States, primarily. And that's where God built the work, was in this nation. Then he expanded to the whole world in 1953. Now, in 2023... Will it be the day that the abomination of desolation is set up, that the three and a half years of tribulation, the 42 months, the three and a half years, and uh, 1260 days begin? Probably so. And they will then preach for three and one half years, even as Christ did, and then their preaching will end. They will be killed in the streets of Jerusalem. And Christ will return and resurrect and change his 144,000. Then, come that fall, he will probably announce the fall of 20, that may be in 2020, uh, fall of 2026, probably when they'll be killed, he'll return. Then he'll take his bride up and marry her and have a year's honeymoon. And in the fall, our Feast of Atonement in 2027, he would return and set up the millennium. The time is perfect. The pattern is the same. An end of this age, an end of the preaching. Exactly 2,000 years later. That is a pattern that is there in the life of Christ and His return. It is a pattern that was in the pattern of the end-time church. It has to do even more technically with the Jubilee years and Christ declaring 1920 or 27 A.D. as a Jubilee. And 27 at Atonement would also be the Jubilee that begins the millennium. 
and he also began to deal with Herbert Armstrong at a jubilee time. So the 50s fit intricately into this pattern, the 50-year periods of jubilee. And you also have the 70 years of uh, Israel's first captivity, the 70 years of us existing within Babylon and God being a little displeased and getting very sorely displeased then when the heathen took over the church and cast it out. And now he's saying he's going to return with mercy and he will yet comfort Zion and shall yet choose Jerusalem in verse 17 of Zechariah 1. Now, God gave this information in one place. Now, I'm nothing, and I know that. And Herbert Armstrong was just a guy who did advertisements for laundries when God began to call him. He was nothing. And I certainly am nothing. I was a minister in the Church of God for many years, and then I wasn't. And I went to Alaska to go hunting and fishing and to make my living there. In a sense, I did as Peter. And the apostles said, well, I go a-fishing. <laughs> so I went a-hunting and fishing. Uh, and then God began to reveal some things to me that made me come back because a commission was definitely given and God inspired the beginning of this church. Uh, I had not intended to start yet another church because I thought there are certainly plenty by now. Enough splinters, we don't need another one. But God made it very, very clear to me that the knowledge that I had been given had to be used. And it had to be preached. And he put me in a place in Church of the Great God where I began to preach it within 30 days after I arrived there, and I didn't have a clue about any of this when I got there. But I began to preach the message of Haggai on the first sermon I gave after being my employment began January 1st, 96, with Church of the Great God. My first sermon was the first week of February of 96. And the message of Haggai is what was revealed at that time and what it means for the end-time church. Seventy years after Herbert Armstrong had been given the knowledge that he needed to preach what he preached, I was given the knowledge to preach what God wanted preached, and to which you responded. Now, we came here, didn't we? And here we are, aren't we? Some of us. We began with about 70 people at that first feast in 2000. The number may have been exactly 70. It was within one or two of that, give or take. Now, let me explain a few things, because I think it's important for us to understand this in order to understand what's going to happen to this congregation. As I said at the first, our church, it's God's church, but he called us to start it. He called you to help start it. Now, we have had here a rebellion where people have decided that I was not competent or qualified to lead this church anymore for various reasons that they have come up with. Now, what's going to happen? When we named it Anatoth, or I named it Anatoth actually, it was because Jeremiah had been told to buy a field and God had told me to go buy a piece of land and prepare a place for his people. 
So I immediately looked at those scriptures about Jeremiah, who was told to do the same thing. And I looked up the word Anatoth in the Hebrew, and it meant, basically, answer. So when we found this property, I said, let's call it Anatoth, because it's God's answer to our quest. We've been looking for a piece of land now for quite some time. I had personally come west and looked and looked all over the Four Corners area for a piece before I ever left Church of the Great God. I was here looking for land before anybody ever knew what was going to happen out here. Years before, between 1996 and 2000. The first time I came west was in 1996, after all this had been revealed. And I knew where Zion was, the true Zion. So a complaint has now been filed by some of those who have left us. And in that complaint, it says that they didn't come here for church purposes. They came here to have a, an association. They formed an association. That's in their complaint. It's in their lawsuit. That is an absolute bald-faced lie. Probably formulated by their lawyer. Because you never heard, and I never heard, the word association ever used in this church or on this property until they filed that lawsuit and called it an association. We came here for purely religious reasons as a response mostly to the Minor Prophet series, which was a religious sermon or sermons. It all had to do with Worldwide Church of God, which we had all come out of. It all had to do with what do we do now. And then you began to hear answers in the Minor Prophets series, and you responded to it. It's the reason you came. And most of those who have filed this lawsuit weren't, didn't even come originally. They weren't even here. Well, they say, well, originally we were supposed to own this land. They weren't even here. How do they know what was said? <laughs> That's ridiculous. But now they're trying to pass it off as an association because their lawyer knows that the Constitution says that a court has no jurisdiction in a free church. And even an incorporated church for the most part. So the courts have stayed away from litigating churches for the most part. And as a free church, they have no right whatsoever. So, landowners associations have a great deal of power in this nation, so their clever lawyer decided we'll call it an association. Well, you can call a pig a pig, and you can call a cow a cow, but you can't change from one to the other. This was a church. It was founded as a church. It was founded with its first sermon and first service on trumpets of two, 2000 and the first Feast of Tabernacles, which is a religious observance, was its first physical meeting, other than the three of us that were at headquarters in Colorado. It was totally religious. None of the people who came in 2000 or since came out here because they heard there was a real good deal on land, and there was a landowners association in northern Arizona in a beautiful area called Cane Beds, where they could come 
and live cheaply. That never happened. And Canebeds isn't a wonderful, beautiful place. It's really kind of ugly around us. And I drove by on the highway before ever finding this place, which was pointed out to me by a member at the time, and saying, that's one place I wouldn't want to live. And that's where we are. <laughs> it wasn't because of a homeowner's association the people came here. Do you? Th None of them considered when they were in Texas or Georgia or Michigan or California or somewhere, I think I'll give up my job. I think I'll give up my house that I've had for 20, 30, 40 years. I think I'll give up all my family but my immediate family. And I'll leave even some of my children. And I'll go out to Arizona because I heard there's a nice land association out there. What a fallacy. No way. They heard there were people getting out of the middle of Babylon and going to the wilderness because Micah 4 said so. That's the reason they came. To try to say anything different is lies. So their whole premise for their lawsuit is based on a lie and trying to prove we're not a church. This has been religious all along. It was formed as a church. I formed it. <laughs> they didn't form an association. I formed it. They came to it and asked if they could be included. So they, they've asked the judge to declare this church an association. Now they also asked in that complaint, some of them haven't, I don't think, even read it to this day, but they're supporting it. They don't even know the lies that they're supporting in some cases. They asked the judge to make them members of the church. Now, they call it an association, but they asked the judge to make the members of the church. Now, what that tells me is they recognize that since they left the church and quit supporting it physically, financially, emotionally, mentally, and in every other way, that they are not members of the church if they have to ask a judge to make them members. So they're admitting that they left it but they still think they ought to own it, and the judge ought to make them members. What's he going to do? Counsel and baptize them? How's he going to make them members of a church of God? He has nothing to do with it. Then in their complaint, they ask that the judge, after he makes the members, dissolve the church. Destroy it. Annihilate it. Get rid of it. Dissolve it. What do you do when you dissolve something? You make it where it's not visible anymore. It's gone. They asked that specifically for him to dissolve the church. Then they ask that he appoint a receiver over the land that the church owns. What is a receiver? A receiver is someone who gets something, right? It's turned over to him. A quarterback throws the ball to a receiver who catches it and tries to keep hold of it. Now, when a receiver was appointed by the state of California, Worldwide Church of God, he came in and took over the church, took over the finances, took over the buildings, and in essence owned it in, the, in legal parlance. Now, if they're asking... 
understand the blasphemy and the abomination that is occurring here. If they ask a judge to take over the church and turn it over to a worldly lawyer, they're asking for a worldly lawyer to be in charge of the church and its land. Dissolve the church and keep the land. That's what they asked to happen. Do you think that's within the realm of what God desired here? He instructed me to go prepare a place for my people so that they might come as a place of refuge out of the middle of Babylon and just as the northern army is coming to destroy the nation. And it was to be preserved for that purpose. Now, if you turn it over to a worldly lawyer, you know what next is going to happen? They're going to subdivide. And you know what happens immediately after they subdivide? Some of those who received a title or a deed to their land will immediately put it up for sale. Now, some of these people have stated that, they, that I have gone off the track and that they want to restore this property to its original purpose. Now, what was its original purpose? I explained many times the purpose was to prepare a place for God's people to gather when they had to take refuge from the world and from the army that was coming. And I expressly thought it through and set it up so that we would have leases only, not deeds. Because I did not want the world to encroach upon us and to buy lots within this property and keep it diluted from being what God instructed it to be used for. Now, if these people take over, they will subdivide and have already talked with the county about subdivision. That is their intent and purpose so that they get a deed to their land. I say their land, it's church land, but they have a lease on it, some of them. Some of them didn't even bother to get a lease. And they accused me of, of bending people's arms behind the back to make them get a lease. I did no such thing. I laid them on the table and said, if you want a lease, there it is. And there are people who didn't get one. And I didn't browbeat them or bend their arm to make them. And they don't have one to this day. They're renting month by month. But they're not owners. They will absolutely destroy what God has done here if they get control by subdividing. And then I know people have already told me if they get in charge, I'll have a sign up immediately. <laughs> I'll sell. To whom? We've already had somebody try it. Sell to the leg and let him move in here. And he was one of the originals who knew better. You get a worldly lawyer in here, this won't be used for God's purposes. They will take it away from the original purpose, and that was to preserve it for Sabbath keepers, God's people only. That's the reason we had a lease. And it says lease at the top. And then some of them filed papers that said we have a lease to buy. That is an absolute blatant lie. There's nothing in that lease that even hints at ownership or them owning a lot. Nothing. And even when they filed it with the county, they put it in the copier in such a way that the, the title at the top that said lease was obscured and it couldn't be read. That's chicanery. This whole thing is fraud from day one. It is lying, it is fraud, it is extortion, and it is stealing. Now what does God say about thieves and liars? 
they will not be in the kingdom of God. Okay? This whole thing's based on a lie. Now, when I said we're going to talk about what will happen to this church, this is front and center with where we are today. Now, where's it going to wind up? How's it going to end? What's going to happen here? One of them communicated to me that, well, since you divorced us, I divorced them! Give me a break. All I did was tell them what they were doing was divorcing us. Who filed the papers for divorce? Who filed a complaint that said, make us members and dissolve it and get rid of Daryl Henson? They're the ones who filed the divorce papers, not me. I'm still in the same place doing the same thing I've been doing from day one. Trying to save this place for God's church and His purposes. They are trying to subdivide it and make it possible for people to start selling acreage and dilute it with people from the world and with a leader, a receiver, who is a worldly lawyer. That's what they've asked the judge to do. I didn't divorce them. They divorced us, brethren. One of them also told me, and I've got it in print, but the only reason they filed this suit was to save it from lost Ross LeBaron. Now give me another break here. There was never, ever, for one moment, any possibility of this place being taken over by Ross LeBaron. I have never borrowed one penny of money from him, so he can't claim it is a debt. It is in... Marla's in my name, the mortgage is, and we have made the payment ahead of time every month since 2003. Never missed a payment, never been late. You cannot repossess something that is paid up. You can't do it. That is just a falsity and a, an unfounded fear. Now, I don't doubt that there were some people who are dissonant and who have rebelled against me and, and this church who may have tried to talk Ross into finding a way to take over because there was a while there that he believed some of the lies they were telling about me and he disassociated with me. And he got kind of buddy-buddy with them. But then he saw through their lies and he got rid of them and asked, told me to come back. That's the truth of the matter. So maybe they did try to get him to say, you know, you ought to take this over. I don't know. I'm guessing that because of what they had to say. Well, he was going to take it over. There is no way in heaven or on earth he could have taken over this place. Never an instant. And I'm certainly not going to turn it over to him. I bought it to preserve it for God's people and his use in the future. Then they said another reason was that that was to, pr to protect some young and new members. When did God make them the pastor? When did God put them in charge and say they needed to protect new members from the minister who had invited them here in the first place? That is presumptuous to decide that they need to take over ministerial responsibility and protect these people from the one God had put in charge here from the founder of this organization. And they also set up a corporation, or at least I don't think they filed it, but they set it up 
And in their papers it says that they were to own and to manage the land. When did God put them in charge? Go back to my sermon on Uzzah and steadying the ark. Does God need help? Does he need their help? Did he need Satan's help to rule the universe? No. He was in charge. He knew what he was doing. They rebelled against him. They decided, Satan decided it would be better if he was running things. Bottom line, utter rebellion. That's what this is. That's what happened in Jeremiah's day. They put him in prison. Some of them have already told me they're going to put me in prison. Been told that, specifically. Well, maybe they will. I don't know. They did Jeremiah, and God allowed it. But who won in the long run? They didn't. Jeremiah and God did. So it doesn't matter. And if this thing goes to court, and it may, and they spend a lot of money, and we spend a lot of money, and you get somebody as a judge or a jury who don't understand the Constitution, maybe some liberal socialistic judge who doesn't go by law, we'll give it to them. But you know what? We'll appeal it. And that'll extend it even further, and it'll cost them a lot more money and us a lot more money. But I'm not going to give in. God commissioned me to do this, and I'm going to do it with all my might, with all the power and strength that Almighty God can give me to the end. Is that clear? We will take it to appeal if we happen to lose. God will get me out if they send me to jail. It doesn't matter. I know the end of the story. And I'm going to tell you the end of the story here in about a minute. Or two or five. They're presumptuous. And you know what presumption is? Witchcraft. You know what witchcraft is? Satanism. When you rebel against what God has established, that is the attitude of Satan. These people think God is on their side. They think he's going to bless them and give them this land and get rid of that centered arrow. Well, you know, I'm God's responsibility. God can get rid of me in a heartbeat. He has no problem with that whatsoever. They think it's their job to straighten me out. Well, I'll tell you what, they're not going to straighten me out. They said they did this. Another one said they did it to get my attention. They quit paying their rent to get my attention. Believe you me, they have my attention. And before this is over, they will be evicted. God says so. Unless they repent, which I pray they do. But just above, when God describes what will happen here in Jeremiah 11, he says, pray not for this people, they won't repent. And then he describes a rebellion at Anatov and says what will happen. <laughs> They want to own the land, and some of them have been trying to get a deed to their lot all the way back. And they're lying, too, because they said, I never explained to them it was a lease. Yes, I did. Nelson Nichols and Fred Sulis were witnesses at their table in their dining room in North Dakota, where I explained to them that we have set it up on purpose so that you can't sell it. It'll be a lease only. Fred's dead, but... Nelson, Nelson's still barely kicking. So he can be a witness. They knew it was a lease. 
But they've been going around trying to convince people that they ought to own the land for years. And now this thing has come to a head. Let's see. All right. Did, didn't we read in Zechariah 1 that would be those who would try to scatter and destroy? Did we not read that there are others who would try to build and they would pray and cast out those who would destroy? What's the context there? The context is the latter temple, the beginnings of when God is going to begin to bless the church in Jerusalem again. And that there will come a rebellion, and some will try to destroy what God has established, but they will be cast out. That is going to happen. God is perhaps getting very, very close to the time he's going to begin gathering his people, because it appears that we're near civil war, it appears we're near World War III, and the Russian-Syrian uh, army and its allies are prepared to come against us. The economic crash is getting very, very close. We don't have ten years left. And if this pattern of years that we examined a little earlier is true, this could happen as early as sometime in 2017. So, it's imminent. Now, this legal situation could go on for years. When you go to trial and then you go to appeal, that can stretch out for three, four years easily. And it can cost everybody a lot of money. And you know who makes out good on that? The lawyers and the receiver. They're the ones that make out. They make lots of money and everybody else pays and pays money that they do not have and should not be spending for that. But we will, brethren. We will sacrifice. We will figure out a way. God will bless us in such a way that we will be able to pay for whatever we have to pay for until he shows his answer and praise and cast those out. Go back and read Zechariah 11. I went through it. But it says there that Zechariah did not understand what was coming down on him. <clears throat> and then God gave him understanding of it. And it says that those who rebel, he heard Jeremiah's plea, heard his answer, heard him say what he had to say to God. And I've talked to God a lot about this whole thing myself. And I'm trying to change me where I need to change and repent of what I need to repent of. But what they think I've done, 98% of it I never have done. It's mainly false accusation and evil imagination. And they can't prove it. They can't prove any of it. One of them even said it's mostly supposition. They suppose that I did this and that. I'm not here to defend myself. I think Mark, uh, I think it's Mark 9, 12, and 13, says that the one who is given this knowledge and begins to preach it and do it is going to be considered as nothing. Or as uh, I think Amplified says, um, what was the words? Um, utter contempt. And that's why I'm held now. That's okay. comes with the territory. I'm okay with that. If it's good enough for Christ, and it's good enough for John the Baptist, and it's good enough for Jeremiah, and it was good enough for Isaiah and Ezekiel, and others, it's good enough for me. So I don't care what they think about me. This isn't about me. They think I'm here browbeating them, trying to get rich off them. I had plenty more money in, in Alaska and made more there than I'll ever make here. Okay? 
You don't get rich when people pay $100 a month and it all goes to mortgage and sewer and electricity for pumps. Or when you add to that the taxes and it all goes to taxes. Nobody gets rich. This isn't about me. It has very little to do with me. This is about God and His purposes. That's all it's about. When God called Herbert Armstrong and told him quit making advertising, uh, advertising for laundries, I've got something I want you to do. It wasn't because he was great. He was barely feeding his family, and I mean barely. Read the autobiography. And God said, no, I want you to do this. And he did the same thing with me. Now, I don't like to talk about me in context of all this stuff because I know I'm nothing. But you've got you to gotta acknowledge where things happen and how they happen and what the knowledge is. And Herbert Armstrong wasn't bashful about it. Neither was Paul and neither was Peter, for that matter. But I know I'm nothing, and I know I have to diligently obey God, and so do you, if God's going to use this. I meant to go to Daniel. I never got there. Maybe I'll have to do it again. Because there it tells us what the church, the end-time church, is going to do. And it shows Daniel's prayer there in Daniel 9 about repentance and seeking God with all their heart, which is what all the prophecies tell us we need to do. So we have our part to play, and that is listen to what God has to say, do our level best to do it and to grow and to overcome and serve and obey Him, and if we do... He will use us to further His purposes, not ours. I could care less about this piece of real estate for me. I could care less. I have owned, free and clear, bigger pieces of property than this in the mountains of Montana with trees and elk and deer and bear running all over them. And as a human being, I would much rather be there than here. I'm here for one purpose and one purpose only. And that is to serve God and fulfill His purposes. Daryl's purposes would still have me in Montana or Alaska or Wyoming or somewhere in the Rocky Mountains. Not out here in this bunch of polygamous, misfit, run-down, old-car settlement that's as ugly as you can get. The mountains around it aren't bad. But this isn't a place that I would have ever come to. So to think that I'm here for me or to make money is absolutely ludicrous. I didn't want to leave Alaska. My wife didn't want to leave Alaska. And every time we turned around and looked at the mountains as we were leaving, we cried tears. The only reason we left Alaska was to go to North Carolina because I felt that God wanted me there to help with Church of the Great God. And when I got there, he began to reveal the message that you responded to and came here to do. Now, God says there in Jeremiah 11, after Jeremiah made his plea, that the rebellious men of Anatoth would see their young men destroyed by the sword and their daughters die of famine. And he says there will be no remnant of them. None will survive. That's what God says is going to happen. So it doesn't make any difference what happens in the courts in the meantime. 
God will not be mocked, and His word will be fulfilled. His prophecies are being fulfilled lickety-split, all of His prophecies, right now. And they will continue to do so. If the pattern I laid out and the numbers between Christ and Herbert Armstrong and this work are true, that pattern will continue. And God is going to be victorious. And anyone who is in rebellion about what something uh, against something that God has established and think they can run it better, or in the exact same mold as Satan, as Korah, as Abiram, and Nathan, and Ananias and Sapphira. And then if you say that, they get all offended. No, you're saying I'm like Korah. You better believe it. And I'll say it with all the authority of Almighty God. God established this church, this little bitty pitiful piece of His church. And if you act against it, you are in rebellion against God, and you are a son of Korah, or a daughter of Korah. Now, is that clear? And God says you are going into tribulation. Some of them said, well, my children are everything. Their children are going to die in the tribulation. I hope they all repent before they die. But God tells me what's going to happen here in Anatoth. If I understand the prophecies at all, And if I understand the prophecies that brought those people here, then the ones that have to do with that, that show the grim ending of some, are also true. You can't apply it to you coming here for the purpose you came, a religious purpose, and then depart from that and expect that the rest of the prophecy not apply to you. That's contradictory. It won't work. It does apply. Now, God's written it in the Bible. It's not going to change. Now, whether he gets rid of me and gets another leader, that's his business. But these people trying to get rid of me and set up their own leadership and their own receiver ad nauseum are not going to win. God has made it very clear. They're going to be cast out. And they're going to die in the tribulation. That's the bottom line. Now, we may get to what I intended to get to in Daniel another time. Maybe next week. I don't know yet. I wasn't going to give this sermon today. I was going to go back and talk about Abraham. But some events occurred that got me thinking, and then this is what happened. And I prayed that God would show me what he needed to be said. So don't be worried. Don't be frustrated. Don't be tormented. Don't fear what they're doing. It could get ugly. It could get uglier. But before it's over... God has already told us we're going to win. And he's told us they're going to go into tribulation. So let's do our best to simply serve God with all our heart, mind, body, and soul, turn to him with our whole heart, and plead with him to use us to further, not ours, but his purposes.